Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Equals. This is Max. Hi guys, this is Nadia. Max, how's it going? Well, the big news in our house this afternoon, the boys came home from school in tears. The school's closed uh, early because of COVID. It, it was meant to close for the holidays on Friday, but uh, because the cases are going up quite dramatically here in London, they, they closed the school early and the boys are missing their Christmas party. They're really upset. Oh, I, I bet know, they are. If it makes them feel any better, you can tell them that our schools never open to begin with. So my kids have not been able to go to their school since March 2020. And I have no wow. idea when they're going to be able to go back. Yeah, it's just nuts, man. The, the caseload is, is awful. Some places in the U.S. have opened, but not in our area. And um, I mean, at least they, they really do have strong virtual learning opportunities and are becoming Zoom ninjas. So, I mean, at least we have that. I, I know many don't. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, so do ours, but it was really interesting. I mean, even in, in uh, obviously the school is new for us because we've just moved back from Kenya. When they uh, said they were closing the school, half the children got these kind of workbooks with um, kind of worksheets, but our kids didn't get any. And he was, Stanley was upset. So we asked the teacher and she said that all the kids have got workbooks are the ones who don't have online, they don't have Google Classroom. So it's still a even here in London, the real di digital divide, and you can see there's a big, big difference between those who got that access and those who haven't. So they basically don't have internet, those kids. Well, either that, or they've got big families, so they can't all work on Google Classrooms right. at once. You know, I think that's more right, common. Right. Yeah. Know, so yeah, those kinds of things, yeah. Yeah, so there's that big inequality within even a country like the UK, um, and then there's this huge inequality between countries and um, I'm really excited that we're getting to talk about that today with Dr. Prachi Srivastava. Um, she's actually focused on you know what is the global education emergency caused by COVID-19 pandemic looking at issues of inequality and um, she's an associate professor at the University of Western Ontario and her work is feeding into G20 policy discussions and she's really the kind of academic I love you know putting her research into practice um, and I came to know her through her work pre-COVID, uh, looking at the impact of for-profit schools targeting low-income communities or low-fee private schools, as she coined, uh, in South Asia and elsewhere. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. The issue of private schooling, education, privatization in, in developing countries, I think, is extremely relevant and, and you know, led to the weakness of education systems when the, when the crisis hit. And then after Prachi, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to try uh, uh, something we haven't done before, I don't think, or I haven't done, uh, is um, a kind of debrief together with our friend and ally Linda Aduanoa from Kenya, who's an education activist, and she's been fighting privatization uh, in Kenya over the years. So she's going to bring her her insight and her examples to our analysis of what Prachi had to say. So that should be good, too. Absolutely. So a lot to cover. Shall we get on with it? Yeah, we really should. Let's. <laughs> Prachi, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a really busy time and very much appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this podcast. And I feel very honored to be amongst the guests, uh, the guest list here that you have. And we're honored to have you. And what an interesting time it is for you to be working in the field of education. I mean, the disruptions we're seeing around the world in education are massive, of course. And I wonder if you can set the scene for us here globally. What are some of the longer term impacts on education inequality that could result from, from the coronavirus pandemic? 
Yeah, so, you know, it is, it's, it's an interesting time, but it's also a very worrying time. And I think it's a very stressful time for uh, many of us uh, who are working in global education. And of course, for most of us who are in some way involved in the education system, whether it's personally having children in the system or just being, you know, engaged citizens. Uh, I think some of the, the big macro numbers that people would have heard already um, is that the school closures that we saw in the first uh, phase of the pandemic reached a peak and they kind of affected, you know, between 1.6 to 1.7 billion children. And that roughly equates to over 90 to 92 percent of learners if you look at, if you look at that in terms of population back um you know pr- proportions you're looking at almost uh, 95% of the total population of children and youth and in terms of humanity so if we just look at it in terms of global you know humanity demographics we're talking about roughly a fifth of the world's population right that's 20% almost of all the people that inhabit our earth um, have been affected by this directly because that's the population breakdown. So, you know, framing all my comments within that, I think when you ask what the long-term implications are in terms of inequalities, well, we know that um, the disruptions are going to have uh, differential effects on different countries, uh, different uh, regions within countries, and different groups of people. Uh, within and across countries. And we also know that the education disruptions are going to affect those people that were already negatively affected going into the pandemic relatively more than others, right? Roughly uh, 900 million children did not return or returned in precarious circumstances, even when schools reopened uh, generally. And that has to do a lot with infrastructure issues. It has to do with some of the lingering issues that education systems faced even before the pandemic. And we also know that 500 million children never really had any form of remote learning, none. So, and that's mainly in in poorer uh, or yeah. low income countries. Yes, okay. these will be in 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 more low low middle income countries, and then within countries. Um, these will be uh, populations that are underserved in those countries. So, for example, we know that children with special needs often tend to get left out during emergency uh, switches of provision. Uh, we also know that uh, when we're talking about remote or distance learning, a lot of the emergency measures were really about emergency switch to online. And that's not always feasible in every context. It's also not feasible for every type of learner, Um, you know, younger learners, learners that have different uh, modalities of learning. Of course, there's a whole issue of broadband provision. Then there's a whole issue of parents and whether or not they're able to support their children in terms of that kind of um, learning if they're learning from home. And I want to go into a little bit about structure here. You know, over the last 20 to 30 years, we've seen an underfunding of systems, education systems. And we've seen a hollowing out of those bureaucracies, administration systems that actually are supposed to make sure that the system runs, right? When you're underfunding and you're not hiring enough people to make sure that the system has officers in charge or, or, or people that are actually monitoring the system on the ground, 
when there's an emergency, all of that compounds. Right. And I, I'm trying to understand now with, you know, you've set this scene about what's happening. What are the longer term impacts on inequality that we might see coming out of all of this? Yes. So we have, we, we know anyway, from previous pandemics, these long-term impacts have significant effect on things like lifetime income and earning loss, on learning loss, on, of course, psychosocial health effects. We know that there's increased um, underage pregnancies, sexual and physical abuse that happens with long-term school closures. But in terms of life opportunities and learning and earning loss, I don't think um, citizens and also just general like governments and even donors have really recognized the true impact of that. So there's a modeling study that came out. Uh, it was There's a paper that was written by uh, George Sakharopoulos and his colleagues. And this modeling study came out um, in a couple of months ago. And the figures there are just shocking. They model... Uh, what it could mean in terms of having just four months of school closures. And they model that globally in terms of earning and learning loss. And what they find in terms of earning loss is that four months of school closures could result in lifetime earning loss of this generation globally of $10.6 trillion. Wow. It's massive. Huge. Okay. This is massive. And I don't think people have really appreciated what that means for the next generation. It just blows your mind. Can I, can I ask you um, specifically, I mean, I think the impacts on girls in particular have been quite dramatic. I wonder whether you could say a little bit about that and how that's played out in different countries around the world. Yeah, so what we're going to see is the way that different groups of people are inserted into our societies is what really determines how badly they are going to be affected, right? So globally, we know that in many, many countries, girls tend to be in that group. But then there are a bunch of other cross-cutting, multi-dimensional factors, right? So you could be a rural girl, you could be a rural girl from a lower caste community, uh, from a religious minority, from a, a fr- from an underserved area, right? All of those things will compound to make the situation better or worse, depending on what is valued in the society in which you live and, and what is devalued in the society in which you live. So when you talk about girls, yes, we've already seen that there are um, inequitable effects on girls and women as a result of the pandemic. We know that, for example, many of the caring functions that already women and girls carry are, are already being aggravated now during the pandemic. Some of that is a direct result of labor market opportunities. Some of that is a result of gender norms. And some of that is a result of actually having to take on more burden, right, within caring roles. So when that compounds then with having already inequitable access, we're going to see that in countries where that um, gender parity was already volatile and where already we had issues with girls and women being able to participate in education to the extent that they should, we're going to see that. And I think what we're going to see globally is pockets of that within all our communities. For example, in higher income countries, it's going to affect racialized 
minority groups that are also doing frontline work and what that means in terms of domestic labor and opportunity, right? We're going to see that in a different way playing out. And we're going to see that in a very different way playing out in countries, low-income countries, where already girls were at a disadvantage in terms of entering the system. The way you expressed the intersectionality was absolutely spot on. And and if you don't mind, if I could be a little bit um, informal here, the reason I'm always thinking about intersectionality is because you know, I, I inhabit that world, you know, an Anglophone brown kid from 1970s Quebec. But for me, the markers around intersectionality are so present in my own identity. I've lived in many, many different countries. I am the most privileged when I do my work in India, because from my last name, you can infirm my caste, which is a high caste. I am uh, born into a Hindu tradition. That's the dominant uh, religion. I come from, my family comes from the dominant region. Like all of that is inferred from my last name. And, wow. and as a result, you know, and I speak Hindi and I, and I actually do speak Hindi relative pretty well. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, that credit goes to my mom, but you know, so, so as a result, when I'm doing my work, when I go to India, and of course I have all the other markers of being, uh, you know, well-educated coming from a particular social class background, people can infer the fact that I'm a researcher. I have a certain positionality in, in, in society, which I have a, hard time with, but it is what it is. And my family actually, you know, we're landowners pre-independence. So there's a lot of indicators that are attached to my last name and just what I do, the the the, the characteristics characteristics that are ascribed to me, right? And right. things sure. that I obtained and things that I have been ascribed, over which I have no control. But in Canada and um and 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 you know in and also in the UK, those um, characteristics are muted, right? So that's not what people see. That's not what they infer. They see a brown woman who um, is an Anglophone uh, from Quebec, when if I live in Quebec, and, and there's a certain level of privilege or not, you know, or, or a lack of privilege associated with that. Same thing in the UK. So, you know, I'm the same person. I'm exactly the same person. I have the same attributes, regardless I'm that same person, but certain parts of my identities are accentuated in a way in which I have tremendous privilege and in certain parts of my positionality are muted in such a way as to defy that privilege. And, and that's why this whole intersectionality is so important to me when we're having these big discussions around inequality and education and life opportunities, because a lot of those are things we don't have any control over. But our systems and the way our systems work and the way we structure our systems, we do have some control over. So if anything, I hope that the pandemic can allow us to see some of that a little bit more because it's affecting all of the countries, but it's affecting all of the countries differentially and it's affecting people within those countries differentially. I think that's so well put. I mean, it's it's held up a mirror to, to so many inequalities. And listen, Prachi, I really want to ask you now about, um, in particularly about a specific solution that some people put forward to the education crisis, and I'm sure they will post-COVID, which is to expand the role of the private sector and private education and these low-cost private schools for poor people in developing countries. You've done a a lot of work on this. Can you can you tell us what you think about this as a kind of solution to the problems we have with schooling? 
there's two issues. The issue of a uh, gap filling, we have to be cognizant of the fact that the reason in, in, in a number of countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and in South Asia, that we saw this rise of low-fee private schools over the last 20 or so years is because there has been uh, a hollowing out of uh, good quality state provision. And that is a result of underfinancing in terms of the domestic budgets, but also in terms of the the uh, aid priorities and also in terms of some of what we see from donors um, and, you know, broader kind of global discourse around paying lip service to um, education for all, but not really investing in those systems in the way that we should. There is a real need for some of those providers um, to come in, but it really is a failure in terms of broad good quality provision across the board. And where those providers do come in, there are still real concerns around equity. Who really can afford to send their children to these schools? I think in terms of really looking at what we mean when we talk about low fee or low cost schools, there's really not been a lot of clarity around that. So I've been pretty specific to define when I say low fee schools that for me, uh, for my studies, that means that the school cannot charge more than what a daily wage earner earns in a day. They cannot charge more than that in a month, right? So it's kind of trying to understand some, it's not perfect, it's not a perfect measure, but it's trying to understand what we mean is that we see really difficult choices that households have to make. They then start having to choose. Firstly, we choose to send our children to school at all. Um, and it's not a choice. It's just like, those are the circumstances. What do we do? It's not a real choice, right? With lots of options. Do we choose, do, do we send them? And if we send them who, you know, which ch children go to which kinds of schools and then for how long? And that's where we start seeing potential gender uh, patterns emerge. We might see birth order patterns emerge, like maybe older children going to certain kinds of schools and younger children going to others. We might see potential in terms of um, this idea of ability, like, oh, she or he is the smarter kid. So we're going to send them to that kind of school. You know what I mean? So really, in instances where the the expansion or further intake of certain groups was default provided by a low fee private sector going into the pandemic, you know, I am really concerned about what that means. Because if those those schools are not going to be able to be financed directly by household fees, they were already precarious. State governments have their own education systems to actually look that that in the vast majority of cases do cater for the most number of children still still has the largest infrastructure in in most countries of course there are exceptions but i don't see this as a particularly hopeful situation and it worries me to no end i think you're right prachi can i ask you particularly about those the kind of big chains of international chains of private schools that are kind of expanding into the market in poor countries, trying to provide schooling using technology, trying to kind of use much more unskilled teachers and rely on tablets and teaching by computer. Can you explain their kind of worldview, how they see the future of education in poor countries? When big capital comes in to finance on short timelines in education, 
All of this is driven by a rush for impact. And so technology is driven by that impact. But we need to be very targeted and we need to actually understand that those initiatives are going to have some impact, but they cannot replace full education, well-functioning education systems with full coverage of good quality en masse. They cannot replace. And, and Prachi, coming to um, to the end of the interview, just on that note, thinking about you know quality universal education for all, which is where you just ended that statement, how do we get there? I mean, I, I know that's a really big question to end on, but just thinking about what are some of the, the top solutions that we should be aiming for big picture and and are you hopeful that that we'll get there yeah that's i mean that's like the billion dollar question right how do we get there if we had that answer um look we need to understand that the uh the sdgs the sustainable development goal framework and all of what we've been doing at least since 1990 but it goes back further you know since the 50s um but at least let's say the sdgs we were focusing on getting the remaining 200 and almost 60 million children who were out of school pre-pandemic, right? We have to understand that all of this action was really trying to get those children into school and maintain the gains we've had and increase quality. Now we're talking about almost that entire generation of children. I mean, wow, the impact of this is exponential. It's many, many fold. And it's long term. And it doesn't just mean focusing on low income, low middle income countries, it means focusing on all the countries, and particularly focusing on pockets within those countries. I'm going to give an image. We tend to think of countries, you know, low income, uh, and, and, and middle income. But really, I want, to, I want people to end with this idea of the black holes of exclusion. And the black holes of exclusion that we're talking about are almost like constellations, right? Constellations of different people that are all connected by virtue of their exclusion. So we need to think about our solutions in a much more globally connected way and a more cross-sectoral way. Maybe if health is going to get more budget, because we think that it will, and if social protection is going to get more budget, because we think that it will, then are there parts of the education system that can be cross-financed because it actually serves those goals, right? Then I think we do have a way forward. And in this, I think that our uh, countries that have had that are low income countries and that have had to be dealing with emergencies for predating the pandemic, I think they're actually going to be ahead of the game in terms of having that modeling. Prachi, thank you. And on that note, I think that we'll um, we'll take it to the end of the interview. And thank you so much for bringing these issues together, thinking about countries and the relationship between communities and the need to see financing holistically. Uh, and indeed, hopefully there is a some ray of light in, in the quest for quality universal education for all. Thank you for being with us. Yes, thank you, Prachi. That was fascinating. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, Nadia and Max, and, and all good wishes to everyone. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was a very sobering conversation. My goodness. You know, I mean, we see all these impacts today of the pandemic, but if I'm being fully honest, I don't think it's until this conversation with Prachi that I'm really starting to think about the long term impacts of coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, it was really shocking, wasn't it? You know, hearing how it could be decades before uh, we're back to where we were before and how so many of these pupils today are going to lose so much in terms of future earnings. I mean, it was just, it's just really sobering. Uh, but we're, we're joined now by Linda Odor Noah to talk about things from how things are looking on the ground in Kenya. Hi, Linda. Hi, Nadia. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, Linda, it's great to hear your voice. We're really keen to get the the kind of the perspective from from Kenya and mm-hmm. particularly the the impact on on education and on kids from poor backgrounds of of the of of coronavirus. I mean, I think the schools have been closed more or less since since March, haven't they? Yes, they have, partially anyway. In your experience, you've been working on education in Kenya for many years. What what does it look like um, from there? Well, maybe I'll take it chronologically. Um, So obviously school closures were announced and I think that was shocking to everyone. Schools have never been shut down nationally at that level. The learning loss conversations only came later. Um, Initially, it was more the child protection issues that started coming out. It started dawning on me just how big a role schools played um, within our general society. Schools were safe houses, schools were child protection centers, schools were places for nutrition, the community centers. I think any inequality that we'd seen before was amplified during this period. But um, I think we'll be seeing the impacts of this period for a long time. And so, Linda, what about the response of these so-called low-fee private schools, uh, particularly the commercial chains, like the ones that are mushrooming around East Africa? How have they been responding to coronavirus? Right. Um, So low-fee private schools, we have quite a number of them, um, especially in urban areas in Kenya. And to a large extent, they are the ones that provide a lot of education, like 60% within urban informal settlements is provided by low-fee private schools. I remember immediately after lockdown was announced, we started hearing from people on the ground, teachers that uh, teach at Bridge International uh, Academies, how their salaries had been slashed uh, to 10% um, of what they were earning. Now, this isn't a surprise to us because we have been undertaking research on chains of low-cost, low-fee private schools um, for a long time. And we knew from their track record, for them, profit is the bottom line. And so if they're not making money, then they're not going to meet any of the other obligations you'd expect, you know, a school to meet. There's no mercy shown to students or to parents um, as long as they they can't pay the fees. And we also know that um, they started teaching via WhatsApp um, that a lot of parents could not access this platform. Uh, And so children continue being excluded from the school, um, not only for financial reasons, but just because they cannot um, access the tools that are being um, used by that particular school. They started asking for support from the government. Um, They asked for concessional loans to be provided. I don't think this is the way that we should go. The Ministry of Education has very scarce resources and whatever resources they get should go towards strengthening the public education system, not towards a loan service that has not been very transparent. So private social Solutions in Kenya are a very short-term option, but the, the long-term solution would be to invest in the public education system to make sure there's enough classes, enough teachers, enough space, uh, rather than trying to, to fund or to you know, shift their obligation onto low-fee cost providers. What would you say that the, this pandemic has taught us 
about the education system in Kenya, what's working, what's not working. Schools have been underfunded for a very long time. We know that teachers are not properly equipped. We know that there's not enough public schools in places where they are needed. And so all these things need to be looked at urgently uh, and strategically, um, especially given the fact that financing is declining in all quarters. So I think we need to be very strategic about what our priorities are and what our values, the values that are driving our priorities as well. And they'll need to contend with the trade-offs that people are, are actually living with. Do I have to pay extra activity fees um, or extra water fees at school? Or do my children eat? Or do we have a place to stay? And these are the trade-offs that parents are thinking of. And I think sometimes they actually forget who the parents are and what sacrifices they're making to ensure their children go to school. And, and Linda, would you, would you expect that there will be a big increase in the numbers of children out of school in Kenya in the in the kind of medium to long term? It's a huge um, question, I think, that where people are avoiding. So, I mean, prior to COVID, we already had a huge out-of-school population. I mean, 800,000 to 1 million children is not, it is not a small number of children, right? And so now with COVID um, and the economic impact it's going to have on, on citizens, I do expect um, a lot of parents, a lot of children, sorry, um, who will drop out of the system, definitely in the medium term. In the long term, depending on what the policymakers and decision makers decide, we could start reversing the trend once again. But even just seeing the fact that ODA might be declining, I saw the recent announcements uh, in the UK last week of, you know, foreign aid to education being cut. And the fact that a lot of our governments in sub-Saharan Africa are still age dependent. What does that mean um, for the millions of children that were uh, leaning on those grants? So yeah, um, it does look a bit dire. At the moment, but if people start thinking strategically from now, then hopefully the tide could shift in in the long term. That was a very uh, interesting uh, way to wrap up this conversation, Linda. Thank you so much for for giving us this perspective uh, from the ground in Kenya. It was a really good way to contextualize the earlier conversation we had with Prachi. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Linda. That was great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thanks to all of you out there listening to our podcast today. And of course, our holiday season is coming up and we wouldn't leave you hanging without one more 2020 episode. So do look out for that. Check out our earlier episodes, share with friends, leave us a five-star review, and do follow us on Twitter at Equals Hope. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.